Should we go ahead and say our goodbyes now? Yeah. <laughs> I'm missing you guys already, and I haven't even gone yet. I want to thank you again for making me feel like one of you. I feel like this is my family. <laughs> and even... even <laughs> Even though we're going to be separated by a lot of miles, it's just right around the corner in prayer. Amen. And Americans, I hear, take vacations sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes they go to other countries. <clears throat> we're in the phone book. You ever decide to come to Spain, need a place to stay, need a translator? A guide. What else can I offer you? Christian fellowship. We'd love to have you. We're going to begin again tonight in Luke chapter 3. And then we're going to go to Mark chapter 6. Luke 3 to begin. And then Mark chapter 6. In Luke 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 15. I didn't have any matches, but Adel did. (laughs) Luke chapter 3 and verse 15, the word of the Lord says, And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will quench, he will burn with unquenchable fire. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. And now we'll go back to Mark chapter 6. And we begin reading in verse 14. And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works to show forth themselves in him. And others said that it is Elias, and others said it is a prophet, or as one of the the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John, whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John, and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him, and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and holy, and observed him. And when he had heard him, he did many things, and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come, 
that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains in the chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto the half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And, and he went in and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Amen. Let's, let's pray. We are grateful once again, Heavenly Father, for the privilege that we have of meeting together in the Savior's name. Christian fellowship, how sweet, great the joy when Christians meet. And we give you thanks for that opportunity once again afforded us. But especially because we know that as we meet in the name of the Savior, He is here with us. And we give you thanks for His presence. And we pray that by the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our midst, we would know your voice speaking to our hearts through the word tonight. We pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding. We pray that you would give us whatever it is we need, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. That you would lead us on, as the psalmist said, make your footsteps to be our path. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's so much to consider about the life of John the Baptist that we're just going to run over some of the many things that I hope you'll continue to study about him tonight. We want to think about his trials, the personal trials that he went through. We want to think about his final trial, his most difficult trial, and his death, and about what the Lord Jesus had to say about him, the eulogy that Christ gave to John the Baptist. The trials, when we look at the trials of John the Baptist, and, and they began actually when we were in Luke chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, we began to see them. The trials show what kind of a man he is. And trials show what kind of people we are. Everybody has trials. If you have trials, it doesn't mean you're any different from anyone else. What distinguishes one person from another often is how they respond to trials and how they react to trials. And we might as well say that everyone, when they go through trials, has a certain sense of despair and discouragement. It's natural to feel that way in a trial, in a difficulty, a wondering of how everything could ever turn out good and how will I get out of this. These things are normal in trials. But some people seek a solution to their trials and are not the solutions that God gives. And some people wait on God and take the solution 
that he provides. Some people change their, um, shall we say, their doctrinal statement or position in trials, in the midst of trials, under pressure. And some people are so convinced of what they believe because they got it from the Word of God that not even the deepest and darkest trial can take it away from them. And so someone has well said, whatever God has shown you in the light, never doubt it in the darkness. So we think about the trials and the tests of John. We want to go back to Luke chapter 1 and look at that last verse in Luke chapter 1, verse 80. The child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. The first trial of John the Baptist that we're going to consider and maybe the first trial chronologically, because it certainly began in his childhood, would be the trial of loneliness. He was in the desert. He didn't have what you would say a well-developed social life. He didn't have, as we mentioned before, his parents were already old when he was born, and certainly by the time he reached the age of a young man, a young adult, It's very likely that his parents were no longer living. The scripture doesn't tell us, and so anything we would say about it would be conjecture. But it's not difficult to understand why many people believe that before John reached manhood, adulthood, his parents had already passed away or else were, were, uh, one of them was gone or both of them, if living, were in very feeble condition. Many believe that he lived alone. And he went to the desert. And in the desert, as we said before, no people, no music, no friends. He could have felt sorry for himself all those years waiting. God didn't feel sorry for him. And do you know what? Sometimes what we consider to be the test of loneliness is actually a blessing in disguise. In Spanish, we have a saying, mejor solo que mal acompañado. It's better to be alone than in bad company. And some of us, probably some people here tonight, need to make that decision and that evaluation of certain friendships. It's better to be alone than in bad company. And so God sent John to the desert because God didn't want John to be a company man. He didn't want John to be a socialite. He didn't want John to be someone known and popular, someone who would be drawn away by friends or or family or social attachments or commitments. He wanted John to be the kind of person who learned, as we said and have been saying all through, who listened to the voice of God and was willing to stand on what God had said. A person who realized that the greatest friendship that anyone can ever have in this life is the friendship of the living God. One plus God is a majority. And the Lord has promised us, hasn't he? He didn't say it to John, but I'm sure John knew his presence with him. But he said it to us. He said, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's a faithful friend. One who's closer than a brother. One who laid down his life for us. And sometimes... We don't appreciate our friendship and our fellowship with God until God puts us in that place of loneliness 
where we don't have other people to depend upon, where we don't have their company to enjoy. And then the person who has God for a friend is grateful for that friendship, the friendship of God. So John is in the desert, and John is lonely. I'm sure there were many times when he wished he had someone to talk to, someone to listen to, someone to share things with, share the sunrise, share the sunset, share some moment. But he's in the desert. And you know what? He's right where God put him, right where God wanted him to be. But it was a test. Now, if John, tiring of those long years of waiting, had turned and left the desert, had gone and sought the friendship and the social company of other people, if he'd gone back into Jerusalem or back into the town of his parents, if he'd formed himself a group of friends, where would he have been when the time came for God to speak to him? He says he was in the desert till the time, till the day of his showing to Israel. In in Luke chapter 3, we know he stayed there and he passed the test of loneliness because it says, as we were reading, verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. He had to stay there until God spoke to him. That was where the word of God was going to come to him. And many times what we consider to be the test or the punishment, or the sad chapter in our life when we're so lonely is a time where God is trying to get our attention and speak to us. Sometimes the worst possible thing that can happen to a person when they need to grow and develop spiritually is for them to get into some kind of a real close or tight friendship, some kind of a real committed social situation, a romantic situation, and their attention is distracted completely away from the things of God. And isn't it funny how that happens? You take a step and you want to grow and learn and know more about the Lord. And right then, someone comes into your life. You ought to stop and think and wonder sometimes about who sent that someone. Are we saying that we shouldn't develop relationships with other people? No, we're not saying that. We're saying the most important relationship to develop is the relationship with the Lord. And it's hard to do that when you have someone else demanding your time. And, oh, today, a lot worse. Back then, they didn't have cell phones. They couldn't call you every five minutes. Loneliness is a test. What will you do? Would you wait on God? Would you meditate on His Word? Would you make good use of the time? Will you feel sorry for yourself? Will you put yourself into a depression? Because we do that, you know, we put ourselves into them. And I'll tell you something else. The same way you put yourself into it, you can put yourself out of it. (laughs) Pills can't do it. Loneliness. The time of loneliness is a time of waiting. John waited. And when we're waiting, God is working on our character. King Saul passed. No, King Saul failed the test. Of waiting, He was told to wait for the prophet Samuel seven days. Seventh day arrived. The seventh day wasn't gone yet. Samuel hadn't come. Saul looked and he saw the situation. It looked to him like something had to be done right then. And what do good leaders do? Good leaders take the bull by the horns, right? They do something. So he did something. He did exactly what God said not to do. 
He intruded on the office of priest. He offered the sacrifice. What in the world possessed him to do that? He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. So, well, is it a bad thing to offer a sacrifice to God? No, offering a sacrifice to God is a good thing. But God chooses who and when and how. And so, if we do a thing that in itself, in and of itself, might be considered to be good, but we are not the person and it's not the place or the time which God has chosen, then it's wrong. And Saul failed the test. He didn't have to wait until he was 30. He only had to wait seven days. What if the Lord said for you to wait seven days? What if he said to wait 30 years? Well, you know what? 30 years isn't any worse than seven days if you're waiting on God. God can sustain you for seven days and he can sustain you for 30 years. His calendar is not the same as ours. And when we're young, we're impatient. And and we don't like it. And, And everybody else has their friends and they have their group and they have their activities. But maybe God is saying tonight that he wants to put you into the test, into the place of loneliness. Maybe he wants to take you out of bad company and let you learn the privilege and the joy and the blessing of being alone with God. With him. With his word. And I'll say to the young people tonight, it's a test. Like it was a test for John. If his parents died, and there he was all alone, the test now comes. Your father has told you what the word of God said. Your father, he could say, John, told you what the angel said, what God's message was, what God's plan for your life was. But your father's gone. Now what? What do you really believe? And a lot of Christians that grow up in Christian homes, when they grow up and get out on their own, it soon comes to light that they don't really believe the things that they said they did when they were little. John passed the test of loneliness and waiting when he was in the desert. And God will put you in a situation where your convictions will be tested and where you will find out if you really believe the things that you say you do or whether they are simply a convenience or an inheritance, a tradition, or maybe a nuisance. Because what you really believe is what you stand up for and how you stand, what position you take when no one else is forcing you to. And John waited alone in the desert. So we could say he passed the test. And if God has put you in a place tonight where you feel you're having to pass the test, you're having the trial of loneliness, you thank him for it. He knows what he's doing. And remember, don't, feel, don't give in to self-pity and feel sorry for yourself and compare the, your lack of friends with the abundance of friends that other people have and all that sort of thing. Think about God. Think about the wonderful opportunity you have to get close to him, to spend time in his word. A friend who never fails, a friend who will never leave you. And say, Lord, I want to pass the test of loneliness and waiting, and I want to develop my relationship with you.
The second test that John had to pass was the test of pride. And to think about the test of pride, we're going to go to the book of John, the Gospel of John, in chapter 3. Excuse me, chapter 1 of, of John. Test of pride. This is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. This instance reported to us by John in his gospel gives us a clear view of how John responded to the test of pride. And the test of pride is a test that also every Christian has to pass. Pass and pass through and be subject to and more than once. What a wonderful thing it is to see John here in his public ministry not giving in to that, not failing the test of pride. And the question that was asked him simply in verse 19, who are you? Who are you? This is the record when the Jews sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Why did they send them? Well, here's this man preaching in the wilderness. He's preaching by the Jordan River. People are going out and being baptized. He's telling the nation they need to repent. He's telling them Messiah is coming. And the, and the hierarchy, the rulers of the temple, the people who are in control of the religious establishment, they haven't been consulted. And who is this man? Does he have a license to preach? Is he an ordained minister? What seminary did he study in? Who is he? And they didn't know anything about him. Another suggestion we find in this, that perhaps his parents were dead because someone could have asked his father, is this your son? He was a priest. But apparently that information wasn't available, or maybe at least not available to the people who were in Jerusalem. And so they sent this committee, shall we say, out into the, the desert by the Jordan River to interview him. And if they had gone in our day, of course, they would have had their tape recorders and their cameras and the whole complete interview. And now they're going to do a profile of John the Baptist and, and his hometown. They're going to go ask a few people in his hometown what they think of him, etc., But these men didn't have it that organized. They just went and said, who are you? Because apparently someone thought he might have been the Messiah. Since he was saying, make ready the way of the Messiah. Make ready. He's coming. Make ready the way of the Lord. So he says to them, his first answer in verse 20. He confessed. And deny not, but confessed. That means he admitted. He declared, I am not the Christ. That's his longest answer. I am not the Christ. And so they say, Who are you? What then? Are you Elias? Are you Elijah? Why would they think he was Elijah? They knew Messiah had to come. 
Well, why would they think it was Elijah? Because in the Old Testament, we already saw, the prophets had said that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord to turn the people back to the Lord. So they said, well, if he's not the Messiah, maybe he's Elijah. Are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Now, the second answer is shorter than the first answer. I am not the Christ. I am not. And then they asked him a third question. Are you that prophet? They're talking about the prophet from the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord will raise up from among you a prophet likened to your brethren. They didn't understand that that prophecy given by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy was actually a prophecy about the Messiah. That's one of the names of Messiah, one of the names of the Christ. That prophet. Well, they thought it was someone else. They thought it was a third party, another person to add to the list. So they said, are you that prophet? And he answered, no. Every time John's answers are getting shorter. And that's why we say he's the incredible shrinking prophet. He's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. John didn't have a lot to say about himself. And when in John, later in John chapter 3, his disciples spoke to him and they were concerned because Jesus' disciples were baptizing more than they were and people were going after him. And John said to his disciples, he must increase and I must decrease. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? If we could take that. He must increase and I must decrease. He passed the test of pride. He showed himself to be that shrinking prophet. That person who didn't have a lot to say about himself. No public relations campaign for John. Small replies. Short sentences about himself means a man not occupied with himself. A man occupied with something greater than himself. With the message And the person of Messiah who was coming. This was John's occupation. And this was John's message. Not himself. And from that day and from the days of the Old Testament forward, we can say that all true messengers of God magnify the Lord before the people and not themselves. We don't ever want to be people who magnify the messenger. The Lord. The Lord. He must be the center of our attention. Who are you? The answers got shorter and the people got more frustrated. They said it in, well, who are you in verse 22? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What do you say of yourself? That was his opportunity, wasn't it? He could have said, take a deep breath. Well, my father, Zacharias, and my mother, I'll have you know, of the daughters of Aaron... No small family. My family has a great heritage in Israel. And of course, my father was one of the few of all the priests who served that day. He told me many times how we stood there by the golden altar and how that angel appeared to him. And he could have gloried in it and explained it and gone on and on about it and enjoyed his favored position and and exalted himself and his family. What do you say about yourself? Well, boy, I tell you, I sure am glad that none of these Christian psychologists got to him to tell him 
that he needed to have a good self-image. And that he needed to love himself and esteem himself. And he needed to have self-confidence and self-appreciation and all those other self-hyphenated sins. Ah, that's what they used to call them. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when they talked about self and the hyphen and those other things, those were sins that they preached against. And now they've done a complete flip-flop and the very same things that 30 years ago they said were sins, now they're telling people that that's what they need in order to be successful and happy Christians. What's happened? What's wrong with this picture? What do you say of yourself? He didn't even say he was a person. He didn't mention his name. He didn't mention his family. He didn't mention how the voice of God came to him in, in, in the desert. He didn't say God appeared to him. He didn't say what God told him. He just said, I am a voice. I'm a voice. That's what I am. Who are you? What about you? I'm a voice. Of one crying in the wilderness. And he wasn't just talking about the desert by the river Jordan. He wasn't just talking about that desert area. He was talking about the spiritual condition in the hearts of the people that were the people of God, the chosen nation at that time. It was, spiritually speaking, a wilderness. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And he he used his answer to give his message again. Did you see how he did that? I'm the voice of one who says, like I was saying, make ready the way of the Lord. And he went right back to his message again. That's all he could talk about was Christ. He had a heart full of Christ. He had a mind full of Christ. And you know a person whose heart is full of Christ and whose mind is full of Christ doesn't have a difficult time talking of Christ. Doesn't have a difficult time bringing Christ into the conversation. Some people, of course, don't spend much time thinking about him. And so when it comes time to talk, they open their mouth and out, out falls a golf ball. Uh, or, or out falls a can of paint. Or, or, or out falls a, the car of the year. Or, or who knows what. We find it easy to talk about things that we like, things that we enjoy, things that we spend a lot of time thinking about. Our hobbies, etc., Sometimes it's our pet peeve. For the scripture says, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is your heart full of tonight? You want to know the best thing you can do to be a good witness for the Lord Jesus? It's not to go off somewhere and take a course 20 weeks long on witnessing and personal evangelism with multimedia presentations and all of this. You know what the best thing to do to be a good witness for the Lord Jesus is get your heart full of Him and get some of these other things out. Turn them off. Put them away. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time alone with the Lord. Think about Him. Much time thinking about Christ. Think about Christ before you think about self. Think about Christ before you think about the world. Think about Christ and find in Him your enjoyment and your true pleasure. And if your heart is full of Christ, it's not difficult to talk about him. What's difficult is to not talk about him. If that's who you're thinking about.
And John's heart was full of Christ. Make straight the way of the Lord. And he went right back to the subject of Christ. He passed the test of pride. John wasn't a person who was thinking about himself. When he spoke of Christ, he used three different terms. He called him the Lamb of God sometimes. Behold the Lamb of God. And when he said it that way, he spoke about salvation. And in other times, he spoke of him as the Son of God. And when he spoke about him as the Son of God, he spoke about him in the sense of his divinity. When he spoke about him as the bridegroom in the third place, that speaks of his love and affection. But all of these things, he said, he spoke about Christ. The world magnifies the messenger and makes a lot of him. It makes a personality cult. And evangelicals all too often have fallen into this. The messenger is nothing. If he doesn't have a message, his message is everything. And if he doesn't have a message, then he has nothing and he is nothing. And it's a wonderful thing when a messenger learns to get out of the way and let people see and hear the message so that when they go their different ways, they remember the message more than the messenger. William Kelly said to the degree the messenger magnifies himself and causes people to remember him, he has failed as a messenger of God. John passed the test of pride. And you know God deals with us, and you'll find yourself in an opportunity. You'll find yourself in a situation where you'll have an opportunity to talk about you, to advance your agenda, or to talk about Christ. Who are you? Can you say, I'm just someone sent into the world to preach the gospel, which is, and then start giving the gospel? Or do you have to say, and this even happens in our assembly sometimes, how many years you've been in the church and who your father is and how your mother played the piano and how this and how that, and you give your, it's, it's like putting rank on your shoulder. Making sure that everyone knows that you've been around and that you're, you're known and you know these preachers and those persons and those writers. And he said, who are you? And he said, I'm a voice. I'm a voice. Do you have a voice tonight for the Lord? Could God borrow your voice? Could he have it for his own? To use it to speak to other people? That's what he wants to do. But pride has to get out of the way. The third test that John had to pass was the test of envy. And we've already spoken of that in passing, so we'll just come to it briefly. In chapter 3 of John, in verse 26, chapter 3 and verse 26, They came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, that means teacher, he that was with thee beyond the Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Disciples were worried. John's disciples were worried. They saw it as a competition. John, here came John. He broke 400 years of silence. All the multitudes were going out to him and being baptized and confessing their sins. And then comes Jesus. And the disciples of John, some of them hadn't been able to change gears. They hadn't been able to shift. They were still thinking about John and taken up completely with John. And they see the others and they say, well, now everyone's going after him. They expressed it as a concern, as a dilemma. What should be done? And you know, it's a very human thing to feel envy, to feel a competitive spirit. 
All are coming to him. All men come to him. But you know now John is going to reveal the secret of his effectiveness and his usefulness, his blessing as a servant. He didn't desire to be more than he was. He had no secret ambitions. He didn't want to go up from where God had put him. He was happy to stay right there. In fact, he was happy to go down. He said in verse 29, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. John refused to feel envy because now the multitudes were turning towards Jesus. The Lord Jesus had come. He'd been pointed out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it was only right. It was part of God's plan that people should turn then and go to Christ instead of to John. Because John was the precursor, the forerunner, the presenter of Christ. It was his joy, he said. This my joy is complete. My joy is fulfilled. I'm not sad. I'm not envious. I don't want the center of the stage. He must increase. But I must decrease. He wasn't seeking great things for himself. And you know what they say? The most difficult position in the orchestra orchestra to fill is second violin. Second violin. We can ask Adam and he can explain the intricacies of all of that to us later on. But they say that it's because Everyone is in competition. All the violinists are in competition uh, to see who's going to be first violin. And they play. It's it's a competitive thing. And the one who does the best is first violin. And, And then comes second violin. The hardest position to fill because no one or very few are content to be second violin. They all want first. And to have someone at second violin who's content to be there? That's John. And you and I are never going to be more than second. And and that's a distant, distant, immeasurably distant second. If we could only learn it. Christ first. What did Paul say? We had it in the book of Philippians. He must. He said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. He considered it that way. He must increase, as John said. I must decrease. Paul knew it. John knew it. We have to ask ourselves this question. Do we know it? Are we envious of a place of prominence, of the eye, of followers, of success? Are we envious? Are we happy to take the place that God gives us in life? You know, many conflicts have come up in families and churches simply because someone wasn't content to be in the place that God put them and they were envious and they weren't happy to be second fiddle. John passed the test of envy. He said, this my joy is fulfilled. Can you rejoice when Christ is magnified and you are forgotten? When others receive a blessing and you don't? Because this is what often happens in the church, isn't it? 
It's what often happens in Christianity. Someone receives a blessing and we don't. Instead of rejoicing and saying, this my joy is complete, we say, oh, why did he give that and I didn't? I could, I could be a better Sunday school teacher than him or her. Or I've been in the church longer or this or that. Or That's envy. And envy comes from self-importance. And as they would say in Star Wars, that leads to the dark side. <laughs> but as the Bible tells us, that is the dark side. Self and selfishness. The fourth trial or difficulty that John had to face was the fear of man. The fear of man and the respect of persons or favoritism. Proverbs 29:25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. Amen. And many times people have taken, have been derailed and have taken a position that they've been sorry for later. By the fear of man. John passed that test. He's baptizing people in the Jordan River. And here are the multitudes confessing their sins. And in the middle of them are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember that? We saw that at the ladies study. And he said to them. Welcome. We're always open to having dialogue with religious leaders. Is that what he said? He didn't live in California. He didn't live in North America where everybody is obsessed with political correctness and all of these things. He said, you brood of vipers. He said it to them in public. They're standing there. Maybe they were the next in line. And he came up out of the water and he let go of the one he just baptized. And he turned around and looked and here they came. And he said, "Uh uh-uh. Oh, no, you don't. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Go and bring forth fruits befitting repentance. And he turned them around. Now, he didn't make any points that day with the religious community. He just blew his public relations opportunity of the year. When he could have been on good terms with them and they would have invited him into the temple. He could have given an address to the Sanhedrin. Who knows what he could have done? He missed his opportunities. Don't be so narrow. What do you mean calling a person a brood of vipers? Don't you believe in human dignity? It's quoted in the book of Romans. The poison of vipers is under their tongue. He called them what they were. And he wasn't going to let these slick characters slide and ease their way down and get in and get baptized with people who were confessing. They were repenting of their sins and confessing. He wasn't going to let them get in like leaven in the lump, in the mass there and ruin it all. He said, turn around and go back. You come back when you have repented. So, he didn't fear men. He feared God. And then he came and we saw that in the book of Mark. He came and he had his interview with Herod at some point. How that came to be, we're not really told. But it says, Herod had himself had sent and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' wife's sake, his, uh, Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. 
And it wasn't just that. Because we had it in the, in the book of Luke where we were reading. In chapter 3 it says, Herod the Tetrarch, verse 19, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done. Not just for that. Herod was living in adultery. He had taken his brother's wife. He not only coveted in the Ten Commandments, say thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. He coveted his brother's wife and he took her. And, he, and she was his now. And he might have made it legal in his kingdom, but it wasn't legal in God's kingdom. And John wasn't afraid to tell him, it is not lawful for you. This is what he's saying. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's wrong. That's adultery. And he reproved him for all the evils which Herod had done. There were other things. Other things. Things about Herod. Things about his deeds. And John spoke very plainly about it. He reproved him. You reprove a king? You reprove a president? You reprove a leader of your nation? God is no respecter of persons. And sin is sin. It doesn't matter what the rank or the title of the person is who commits it. That doesn't mean you have to speak disrespectfully. But it means you call it what it is. Like we say in Spain, al pan pan y al vino vino. Call things by their name. No respecter of persons. That was a test for John. Because he could have wavered. He could have softened his message. He could have spoken in... in uh, what should we say, oblique terms. He could have made indirect references and then gone off and said, well, I told him and I reckon he, he knows what I was saying. We didn't have to reckon he knew what he was saying because it was very clear he said it like this. Watch my lips. This is a horse. He said it very plain. He said, it's not lawful. The fear of man. If you're worried about pleasing people, it's going to be very difficult to proclaim the gospel. The fear of man and respect of persons is a thing that has ruined many a messenger. What will they say and what will they do and what will happen to me and so forth? Fear and worry and, and, a, a, and a abnormal a twisted sense of respect that leads us to not say what needs to be said. God is looking for people who will say what needs to be said. And remember, that doesn't mean you have to be discourteous. It doesn't mean you have to be insulting. But it means you have to call things what they are. Call them what God calls them. If you're God's messenger, say what he says. And John passed the test. He passed the test before the leaders of the nation, the religious leaders. He passed the test before the political leader. And even though it caused him to go to prison, even though he ended up in jail, he never took it back and he never apologized for what he said because what he said was right. What he said was according to the word of God. And then John had the test of doubt. Doubt. Because Herod arrested him. He put him in prison. And he came to the point where, I suppose, John, because he thought, and he, knowing that what the Old Testament scriptures said, that Messiah would set the captives free, I suppose he thought. We don't know. We'll ask him when we get to heaven. 
that Messiah would take him out of prison. That he would set him free as a captive. We don't know what he thought. But in that time when he was there, and when the kingdom was not set up, the kingdom that he looked for, which Daniel the prophet had spoken of since Daniel chapter 2 and on, when he didn't see that kingdom established, and when things seemed to take longer, it appears that he began to doubt, or we don't know if it was him or if it was his disciples who were doubting, that he sent them to ask when he was in prison. He sent the disciples to say, are you the one who should come? Or should we look for another? And we don't really know if it was for himself or for his disciples. But we do know this. They passed the test of doubt. And one of the ways to do it is if you have a doubt, ask a question and get a clarification. Don't nurse it on the inside. We don't know how many times Judas Iscariot doubted, but I'll tell you this. It festered on the inside of him. He never asked a question. He never opened up. He was a closed book until the night he fell and split his guts open all over the hillside outside Jerusalem. And then all that that was shut up in him came out. So if you have a doubt, it's better to ask, to open up, and to seek help. And John says, are you the one? Are you he that should come? Or do we look for another? And to those misgivings, the Lord had a wonderful message. He healed, he did, he performed miracles there in the presence of those messengers of John the Baptist, and he sent them back to him in prison. He said, you go and tell him this. And he recited the miracles to him, and he said, and tell him, blessed is he that is not offended in me. So the Lord's answer was, yes, I am he. Don't worry, John. It's me. Don't give up hope. Don't give in to doubt. It's me. And it is him. He gave him all the credentials of Messiah, right out of the Old Testament, out of the book of Isaiah. All of those things that the prophet said Messiah would do, he did them right there in front of the messengers. He said, now go tell John what you saw. There's your answer. And if you have questions, God can give you answers. But you're going to have to accept his answer. Don't ask God a question, and then when he gives you the answer, say, oh, well, that's not the answer I want. When you ask a question and God gives you an answer from his word, according to his word, then you have to have the grace and the humility to accept it and the faith to say, that's the end of it. I asked the question, God answered it, God spoke, that's it, the end. We're not going to go round and round and over and over this. God gave me an answer, and I accept his answer and rest in that. So these are things that happen to all of us. We have loneliness, we have pride, we have envy, we have the fear of man. We have situations where we doubt. But our response to those trials shows what kind of people we really are. There are opportunities for us to grow, to be strengthened in the Lord, or if there's not real faith and life there, to throw in the towel. And how many people have allowed themselves to be discouraged in the midst of a trial when they should have said, when I am weak? What did Paul say? Then I am strong. We say, when I am strong, I am strong. And Paul says, no, no. When you're weak, you're strong. Because you have God's strength. So we come to John's final trial and his death. We, we see him here in prison. He went through this moment of doubt. He was in prison for being a faithful servant of the Lord. He was imprisoned for not being a respecter of persons. 
And he said to Herod what he did was wrong. And he pointed out Herod's deeds, not only his, his marriage, his adulterous marriage, but his deeds. He pointed out to him that it was wrong. Herod didn't like it. Herod put him in prison. But not only did Herod not like it, it was worse for Herod's wife, for his adulterous wife, Herodias. She was a woman who hated him. She was a woman who had an agenda with him. She was out for vengeance because he had embarrassed her. And she had been called directly or indirectly an adulteress. And when all the people of Jerusalem are coming down to the Jordan River and confessing their sins and being baptized, and when Herodias knew her sin, she stood up to her full height and all of her arrogance and she said, you're going to pay for that. Well, she couldn't touch him. She couldn't get to him. But there are those households where the women write the music and the men sing the song. And she was the Jezebel of the New Testament. She was a woman who had it in for John the Baptist. She hated him because he told her what she was. She hated him because he pointed out the sin that was so evident to everyone else. He was like that little boy in the story about the emperor's new suit. You know that story? And uh, the little boy comes out at the end when everyone else is looking at the emperor in his nothing and pretending and saying, oh, that's a wonderful suit you have on. And the little boy who didn't know what was going on, he just walked and he said, oh, look, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. (gasps) How shocking that he would say that and embarrass the emperor in front of everyone. So John is like the little boy. He said, that's sin. That's adultery. It's not lawful for you to do that. And he pointed these things out. And boy, was she mad. And she had it in for him. More than one woman over the years of time, controlled by hatred or resentment, has caused a family or a church or even a nation to go to war. And the men do their part too, don't worry. But we're talking about Herodias and what she did. And it was awful. She was behind it. She manipulated her husband and through him the kingdom. And she manipulated her daughter and through him got the head of John the Baptist. It was an awful thing. Herodias is a, you might say, an illustration Of those women, all those people, not just women, who work behind the scenes to oppose, to defame, and to oppose, and to bring to an end the ministry of people who are trying to serve God. And many a man who's been trying to serve God has had secret opposition. Opposition in a house. Opposition in a palace. Opposition in a marriage. Someone who's pulling the other way and causing trouble. And I'll tell you, all of those people are going to meet up with God one day. Because they might be able to manipulate in the kingdoms of this world, but they're not going to be able to do it in heaven. And God has something to say and something to do with people who are manipulators and who are resentful of his messengers. So, John ends up in prison. And Herod has a birthday. And Herodias comes to dance. And all of Herod's lords and all of the chief men of his estates, every, all the nobility is there and they're having a drunken feast. 
Now, some people believe that it's wrong to celebrate birthdays because the only birthday that shows up in the Bible are Pharaoh's and Herod's. But the Bible, that's going beyond what the Bible says. The Bible only comments about Pharaoh and Herod's birthdays. It doesn't tell us whether other people had a birthday or not. We would say what we learn from the scripture is it's wrong to celebrate a birthday like Pharaoh and Herod did. By killing people. By these kind of orgies. Licentiousness. Is it wrong to be happy that God's given you another year of life and to rejoice in that? I don't know where you find that in the word. Every day we could celebrate, couldn't we? As thy days are, so shall thy strength be. But Herod had a birthday, and they got drunk. And Herod made a promise. He got aroused by the dancing of Herodias. And he made a, uh, he, yes, and he made a promise in the, by the daughter of Herodias. And he said, I'll give you anything. And then he wouldn't back down. Because of Pride. He said it in front of all the people in his court there. And he wouldn't back down. And the girl was smart. The girl had learned from her mother that if the king allows you to choose any favor, you come consult with me first. And so she did. She went right to her mother. A lot of young people wouldn't do that today. And, of course, that wasn't a good situation in which they did it. But I think, boy, why is it that the wicked consult and are careful about taking a decision and we just blunder right along sometimes and never stop to ask or to think or to consult. What she did, the act of going and consulting, just not thinking about the situation that she was in, the act, in that moment an important decision was going to be made, an opportunity had come and she consulted before she committed herself. That was a wonderful thing to do. Only thing is, it was a terrible thing to do because it had to do with John the Baptist. But the, the idea, the concept in itself is not bad. It was just applied in a wicked situation. And so she goes and she asks her mother. And her mother didn't have to think about it, did she? I want his head on a platter. And if you ever come to visit us in Seville, I'll take you to the cathedral in Seville that was standing before America was discovered. I'll take you to the cathedral. And we'll go inside, we'll go to the part where they have the art treasures. And I will show you one of the art treasures there. It's a, a, an artist of some kind has done it. It's a big platter about this big around there. And it, I don't know if it's made of plaster or wax or what, but life size on that platter is the head of John the Baptist. One way or another, I'm going to get some of you to Spain. It's a, it's a pretty gruesome looking thing. He didn't make it look nice with all the blood veins and the tendons and the bone and everything showing and all in color. It's pretty gruesome. And there's not a time that I go through there taking visitors when I don't stop and think about all of this. Herodias got her way. She wanted the head of the man that told her that she was in sin. And she wasn't going to be satisfied until she got her treasure. So, so Herod sent them in. He sent the executioner. John doesn't have time to communicate with anybody. And there in that lonely castle, probably the Josephus, the Jewish historian, says it was the castle of Machaerus. 
which is on the east side and the north end of the Dead Sea, one of Herod's castles. There one evening, in the middle of a drunken birthday party for the king, John was beheaded. So he paid, we could say, he paid with his life. And one day we're going to see him in heaven. Do you think he's going to be sorry? Do you think he's going to say, well, you know, thinking back over it now, I probably should have apologized to Herodias. You know, maybe I went a little too far. Maybe I should have toned it down a little bit. Or maybe I shouldn't have said anything at all. You think John's going to say that when we get to glory? I know he's not going to say it. Because when the Lord spoke of him after his death, the Lord had nothing but good to say about him. And we want to think for just a minute now, before we close, about the Lord's eulogy to John the Baptist. Luke chapter 7. He called him the greatest of the prophets. Luke seven twenty four. When the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out of the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? John was not a reed shaken by the wind. John was more like the wind than the reed. He wasn't going to be blown and shaken. What went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in the king's courts. Is this a soft, easygoing person, a rich and comfortable life? What went you out to see? A prophet. Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet, this is, is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The greatest of the prophets, John the Baptist, and do you know it says in the Gospel of John that John the Baptist did no miracle? He wouldn't have been very Pentecostal, would he? He never did a miracle. And he was the greatest of the prophets. In what sense was he a better man than Isaiah? Was he a better man than, than Zechariah? A better man than Malachi? A better man than Jeremiah? Was he a better man than Elijah? A better man than Moses, than Abraham? In what sense was he the greatest of the prophets? Is God giving them rank now? He's going to order them and say, this one is better than this one? He's not talking about that kind of greatness. It's not personal greatness. It's positional greatness. He was the greatest of all the prophets because he occupied the place in the prophetic alignment, in the prophetic sequence. He occupied the place next to Messiah. Of all the prophets, he was the one who saw him and pointed him out who baptized him and who pointed him out and he said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, he said to the people. He's the greatest of prophets in the positional sense, the position that he occupied in time, in his ministry, to be able to introduce the Messiah to the world. Of those born of women, no one greater. And our Lord said that the prophets prophesied until John the Old Testament office of prophet lasted until came John the Baptist. And he was the last. 
The Old Testament office of prophet didn't go on from there. And Joseph Smith is not a prophet of God. And Muhammad is not a prophet of God. And anyone else who says they can put themselves in the same category. On the same basis, I could be a Muslim, I could be a Mormon. Somebody comes along and says, I'm a prophet of God. And you have to believe it because I say so. John was the last prophet, said the Lord. But the Lord says, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Now, what on earth did he mean by that? We're talking position again. John introduced the king and the kingdom, but we're in it. And we have blessings. We have positional blessings that John never had. The Holy Spirit came on John. He was filled with the Spirit to, to carry out his ministry. But we, those of us who believe, we're indwelt by the Spirit. We're sealed by the Spirit. It's difficult to tell sometimes, isn't it? The fruit of the Spirit. The Lord said, our position is greater. He that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It doesn't mean we're better people. It doesn't mean we have a broader ministry. It means we have a greater position. We're in the household of God as those indwelt by the Holy Spirit and sealed by him. And we have the complete scriptures and above all the gospel to preach. And to see the Spirit of God work and to do the things they saw in the book of Acts. And we have the church. We're members of his body. We have a wonderful position as Christians. But you know what? I have to tell you tonight. I don't think we really take advantage of it. A lot of people are just happy to go to meetings occasionally. Not many believers take it seriously what God said, that you have a position that's greater than that of John the Baptist. If we have advantages that John the Baptist did not have, my question to you tonight is, what are we doing with them? What are we doing with them? We have, he never held in his hand the completed scriptures. We have the completed scriptures. He didn't know what it meant to be baptized by the Holy Spirit and to be filled and sealed by him in that sense that we have in the New Testament, permanent. He doesn't come and go. He's in us constantly. What about it? Even if you're the least, the most insignificant in the kingdom of God, you have advantages that John never had. So what are you doing with them? And never mind giving me the answer, but I'll tell you this. One day you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you're going to give Christ an answer. We all are. He's given us a tremendous position. And some of us have had years of teaching and training and, and had the privilege of being discipled and taught and had opportunities to learn. And what are we doing with it? Is it being used for God? Are we taking advantage of the position that God has given us to serve Him and to glorify Him. The second thing that Christ said about John in John chapter 5, verse 33. For the bread of God... Sorry, wrong chapter. 
Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I received not testimony from man, but these things I say, that ye might be saved. He, speaking of John, he was a burning and a shining light. And you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. That's what Christ had to say about John. He was a burning and a shining light. You know, that's the funny thing about a light, a candle, a torch, because the word more correctly refers to a torch, but I can't, with the fire chief in here, bring a torch in here tonight. I figured maybe I could get away with a candle, and I'll probably have to explain myself afterwards. I looked to see if we had any smoke alarms. But the funny thing about them is they can't give light if they don't burn. If they're not being consumed, they're not giving any light. Well, today we confuse things. Today we have scented candles that just give an aroma to the room without burning. But these candles, the kind, the torches that he talked about, the only way they were any good is if they were burning. And do you know that's the thing about the ministry of John the Baptist? Do you know that's the thing that brought people out from Jerusalem to hear hear him? Do you know that's why people stood in astonishment and why they responded in the way they did to his message? He was a man on fire from God. And the old preachers used to say, and it's still good advice, you get on fire for God and people will come out to see you burn. But if all you're going to do is bore people with seven points that start with P that have no practical uh, uh, application in their lives, you're not full of enthusiasm for God and for Christ and nothing is being done and nothing is happening. People don't want to hear that. It is a shame to bore people with the Word of God. John preached the Word of God like a man on fire. And they called him a burning and a shining light. And the order is correct. Because you cannot shine if you're not burning. And to burn is to be consumed. We're being consumed. I'm giving up myself. I'm being consumed. And the giving of myself, and the giving up of myself, allows that light of Christ to come out to the world around me. A burning And a shining light, he called him. Hmm. Candles don't have any camouflage. Torches don't have any camouflage. They're real easy to spot. So easy is light to see that on the battlefield at night, soldiers are told that they're not even allowed to smoke. If If they're on the front lines, they're not even allowed to smoke because the flare of a match... Or the glow of the cigarette can be seen from miles away and give away the position to the enemy. So, some are really short, like this. Others, a little longer, like that one. And others, even longer. John's life was short. But it burned for God. Yours is not to control the wick, the length of the wick. Yours is to burn ours, I include myself, to burn for Christ, to be consumed, to give our lives and to give up and to give of ourselves and to give up ourselves serving Him, being His messenger and His servant, 
doing His will, pleasing Him, and let God worry about the length of the wick. Everybody's going to die of something. If the Lord doesn't come first, and I hope He does. I'm the first one to say that tonight. I hope He does. But if He doesn't come first, everybody's going to die of something. It'd be better to burn out than to rust out, wouldn't it? John had this blessing that he didn't go to his grave. He didn't go to meet his maker after having lived a long and ineffective and quiet third age of life in which he did nothing but remember what he did when he was young. John didn't have to get out his newspaper clippings and his book, his album and his uh, memories from yesteryear. John didn't have to reminisce. John was faithful to Christ right up into the day they took his head. And that's what the Lord wants from us. You don't retire from Christianity. Better to burn out. But you have to burn. You have to give yourself. It's sacrifice. And it might mean giving up something that you enjoy. It might mean giving up something that is legitimate to you. It might mean making a certain sacrifice in your life. It might mean reordering your priorities. But I'll tell you this. If you don't burn, you can't shine. Do we burn with love for the Lord? Are our hearts aflame with love for Him? Is there fire on the altar of sacrifice? Are are we willing to be consumed? Are we willing to give? As Paul said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you even though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. The law of diminishing returns. The more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. I will very gladly do it, he said. I will very gladly spend. That means everything he had. Spend all of my resources. I will spend and be spent. Myself, be spent. So what if my health is ruined? So what if my life is completely occupied with this? So what if in serving Christ I don't have some of the joys and pleasures and fun that other people have and things that other people have? So what? I will very gladly spend. I'll do it with a smile. I won't be whining and complaining and making sure other people know what a sacrifice I made. I'll be happy to do it. I'll be very glad to spend and be spent, he said. He had his treasure laid up in the right place. All his investments were in heaven. And he wasn't afraid to leave this earth because he wasn't leaving anything behind down here. He laid it all up up there. He lived for the Lord and he died for the Lord. But to give light in this life, we have to do like John. And some of us give very little light because we spend too much time trying to conserve and preserve ourselves. We need to be giving ourselves. And they say, you know, the church is like a football stadium where you have 22 men on the field who are in desperate need of rest, being watched by 25,000 people in the stands who are in desperate need of exercise. Some are being consumed and others are consumers. (laughs) So what are we tonight? Are you being consumed for the Lord? Or are you a consumer of Christian goods and services? Are you burning? 
Are you willing to burn? Is it something that you have to lay aside? Something that God is putting his finger on and you know what it is and he knows what it is and I don't and I don't have to because you know that he knows. And he's saying right now tonight, this. Move this out of the way. Amen. Right now, take up this opportunity to burn and to shine for me. And let me worry about the wick. You just do the burning and the shining. May God help us to be like John the Baptist. To not just be admirers of these great men of the faith that, whose lies we read about in the scriptures. To admire them and to make that mistake that I warned you about at the very beginning of this series. F.B. Meyer talked about it, how we often, when we study characters from the Bible, we decide that they're in a certain category on a certain plane that has nothing to do with us. And we divorce them and we separate them from ourselves. And, and we get this mentality that we can't be like them. We can't follow them and we can't do things like them. And he said, it's exactly the opposite. This is why God tells us about their lives. He wants their lives to touch ours. He wants to show us how He works through ordinary people like us who give themselves to Him. And the only difference between them and us is the level of our faith and our sacrifice and our service. We have the same God. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Bible. We have the same gospel. Men and women in the world around us today have the same need. They need this. They need the burning and the shining witness around them. What about it? Are you going to be one? Is this something you're afraid to let, to have God let burn in your life? It'd be better to give it up right now than to go through life sputtering and flickering and put out. May the Lord help us to follow the example of the man whose life we've studied. Let's pray. We come tonight, O Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we give thanks for the life of John the Baptist. We feel our lives are so small and insignificant when we look at his, the wonderful things that he did and the place that he occupied. We come to those words that were given to us by our blessed Savior. The least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And we think about all the privileges that you have given us. We think about how the word of God came to John in the desert, but then we remember that the word of God has come to us, that we have the scriptures, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, that holy men of old spake as they were driven by the Holy Spirit. And so we thank you for that opportunity. And we know that the spirit of God filled John, but we know that the Spirit of God has sealed us and lives in us. And yet we look at his life and we look at our lives and we say, the difference is so great. Yet, Lord, we ask you tonight to begin to take away the difference and to work in our lives in some way to show each of us some small thing, some step to take, some thing to sacrifice. Help us to remember his trials and how he came out of them approved. And to thank you for the opportunities that the trials that you send us are. May we be found approved in the trials that come our way. But above all, may we like John say about the Lord Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And may we be his voice and speak to others of him. May our hearts be full of him. 
Do your work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.